0: i'm ready let's do it right now right here come on all right same as last time remember your crowd control i'll handle employees i love you pumpkin i love you honey bunny
1: everybody be cool this is a robbery any of you pricks move and i'll execute every motherfucking last one of you Welcome to another edition of Final Review. My name is Andrew Claudio. 1994's Pulp Fiction, the movie that put Quentin Tarantino on the map as a certifiable genius and a star, a movie that is known for being his masterpiece. But is that actually what it is? We're here to break it all down, and joining me to do so... The Vincent Vega to my Jules Winfield, the one and only Bernardo Zrowski. Oz. Important question right off the bat. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? Does he look like a bitch? <laughs> Why are you trying to fuck him like one? <laughs> oh my God, this movie. So when we go through the beginning of the pod, I like to find out when we first saw this and or first saw the movie that we're discussing, obviously. And It's for me, these I'm gonna be much older every time I first came upon these all time greats. At least I think I will. I was six years old in 1994. No, I didn't see Pulp Fiction in 1994. I was much later into my 20s when I had no parental guidelines that I had to break in order to see a movie like this. However, I'm curious, Oz, what do you remember? And more specifically, how old were you when you first saw Pulp Fiction?
2: I'm glad my mother's not on Twitter because I'd probably get her canceled by now. But <laughs> I, I saw Pulp Fiction in a theater with my mother, just the two of us, when I was nine years old.
1: Oh my God. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was a choice that, that Diane made. Yep. You legitimate. Thank you, Diane, first of all, because <laughs> that upbringing and that training led to the <laughs> podcast partner I have today. But do you remember anything from being nine years old and seeing Pulp in a theater? I actually, this this maybe
2: uh, maybe I I shouldn't say this. I I remember being kind of bored. Uh, I I think that on on some level, perhaps the the hardened drug narrative and the relative discomfort of uh, that level of dialogue. Well, sitting next to my mother was not the ideal brew for a first, a first screening. Uh, however, certainly it's certainly grown in my esteem and in my heart over the years. Uh, though I, I will say I have a few quibbles here.
1: Mm, I wondered if this is going to be a quibbles episode. We'll get to <laughs> both of ours in just a second. Uh, my first experience with this movie, I just moved off campus in college and I didn't have cable yet. And I, I knew of the name Tarantino. I want to say that he had just released uh Inglorious Bastards was about to release Django. And I I I figured I should check out some of this guy's movies because I've been told that he matters. And I remember being hypnotized by the dialogue and by the screenplay. I remember. You know, God damn the Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta, and I guess Uma Thurman. I can't ignore uh, those three performances, just blowing me away. And I, to the dark comedy of this movie, I remember laughing when I didn't think I was supposed to be laughing, which speaks to how well written this movie is. And look, in a second, we're gonna break down Tarantino the director and Tarantino the screenwriter. I remember thinking, okay, yeah, there's some there's some greatness here. This is a a really well done movie obviously it made our list and we'll explain why in just a second before we get into the stats and then the quotes from a critic I want to read a passage from this movie's opening paragraph on Wikipedia because this this movie gets thrown around as a game changer for independent cinema you knowing the history of the industry I want to see if if you agree with this Um, this is what Pulp Fiction's Wikipedia page says Um, Its development, marketing, distribution, and profitability had a sweeping effect on independent cinema. The self-reflexivity, unconventional structure, and extensive homage and pastiche have led critics to describe it as a touchstone of postmodern film. It is often considered a cultural watershed, influencing films and other media that adopted elements of its style. Oz, do you agree? I mean, I actually agree with a lot of it.
2: Okay. I, I think it. I think it really is a game-changing moment. I mean, it. It, it comes about as sort of an early culmination of you know, a, a class of filmmakers you can call the Sundance Kids, or a whole bunch of other terms out there. But there's a bunch of young filmmakers who come of age in the late '80s and early '90s who break away from the conventionality of the studio system, perhaps inspired by the 80s film malaise that we, at least I talked about last week. Uh, And you see people like Soderbergh with Sex, Lies and Videotape, which I think in some ways is a sort of more important forerunner than Pulp Fiction for this style of of this sort of new art house style of filmmaking. But Pulp is, is critically important in the way that it brought Uh, this meta quality to mainstream filmmaking. There's certainly European film that played with timeline and genre in in ways that Tarantino did. And he's pretty open about the great many influences that go into his work. I mean, the, the guy is a video store nerd who lived out the dream uh, he's very, very specifically stealing liberally from all sorts of other places. There's nothing wrong with that. It, it, it works, it's effective, and it it managed to uh, put this style onto the map, which has become an important thing in filmmaking. I mean, in, in a way, there's no MCU, there's no meta mainstream filmmaking without the success that Pulp Fiction saw. I, I will say, however, it is a, an early... Uh, critical marker for Harvey Weinstein's success. And I, I can't help but admit that when turning it on the other day, I I, I felt a visceral cringe at the Miramax logo. And it doesn't mean it doesn't purge the good of the movie. I, I just it's the first one of these in a while I've watched where the the baggage, not just of Weinstein but of, of lots of stuff here, sort of weighed on me a little bit as I watched it.
1: Well to expand on that I've done a bit of a Tarantino binge the last couple days, and yeah, that's a thing. It's going to be uncomfortable to see either Miramax or The Weinstein Company pop up at the beginning of every Tarantino movie, all but one. You will have to face that. This is gonna be a theme can you separate the art from the artist and look it's important to recognize Uma Thurman alleges that Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted her during the press tour of this movie in 1994 like that's well documented and this is I'm able to do it because I see the brilliance of what's on screen but like that is a reality that we face when we go back and look at these movies as far as the MCU that is fascinating because we didn't talk before this pod that you bring up Tarantino comparing him to one of the more iconic movie franchises. He's a franchise all to himself. The characters he's created stack up with the superheroes that we all see today. Like we did the Dark Knight two weeks ago and had the Joker in a villains category with Hans Landa, a Tarantino character that he just created out of thin air like the characters just from this movie alone Jules Winfield, Vincent Vega, Marcellus Wallace, Mia Wallace like go down the list of characters he's created that end up being on the same level and it's it's almost as if he's got his own comic book of iconic people that we all go back to that aren't based off of original IP like we see today uh it's it's refreshing to, to go into this world. Like I did the last couple days and not have any other baggage other than like Tarantino has written beautiful dialogue and developed this character better than anybody. You'll see, we should, we're starting to have the Tarantino conversation. We should get into the rest of the show and, Let's go through the the qualifications, and then we'll get into the format. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, 92% on 108 reviews, 96 on the audience score based off of 250,000-plus reviews, seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Best Supporting Actor for John Travolta, Best Supporting Actress for Uma Thurman, and then a win in Best Original Screenplay. And then at the box office, it made 107.9 million dollars, 213 million worldwide. Um, Oz, what did the critics say about it?
2: So I think one of the, the most famous supporters of pulp fiction is Roger Ebert. And Roger Ebert didn't really like Reservoir Dogs, his his first film. So it, it makes it a little more a little more interesting. Ebert wrote, Quentin Tarantino is the Jerry, the Jerry Lee Lewis of cinema, a pounding performer who doesn't care if he tears up the piano as long as everybody is rocking. His new movie, Pulp Fiction, is a comedy about blood, guts, violence, strange sex, drugs, fixed fights, dead body disposal, leather freaks, and a wristwatch that makes a dark journey down through the generations. Seeing this movie last May at the Cannes Film Festival, I knew it was either one of the year's best films or one of the worst Tarantino (laughs) is too gifted a filmmaker to make a boring movie, but he could possibly make a bad one. Like Edward D wood jr. proclaimed the worst director of all time. He's in love with every shot intoxicated with the very act of making a movie. It's that very lack of caution and introspection that makes Pulp Fiction crackle like an ozone generator. Here's a director who's been let loose inside the toy store and wants to play all night in his four-star review god damn roger
1: <laughs> holy,
2: roger's
0: good, holy, holy it's really good.
1: <laughs> you're a writer sir jesus okay and i agree with everything you said um will your quibbles come up throughout the pod i, I think they will the, the one the one I, I guess the one i'll
2: raise that i think it's probably easier just to lead with so then we can get into to celebrating what i think is one of the most interesting filmographies of the last three decades mm-hmm. uh i Look, I think it's one thing to look to take a filmmaker like, say, Roman Polanski, who is a deeply problematic, shitty individual, uh, who when you watch one of his movies, you can recognize it's one of his movies, but he doesn't make himself a part of the narrative. And Tarantino, in the way he presents his movies, in the way he writes his movies, and in the way he acts in his movies, has a an almost auto fiction element to what's going on. There's a lot of meta elements. To his work And I will say It makes some of the elements That perhaps age poorly uh, From a movie made In the mid-90s Stand out a little more When you Take them in again In 2021 I, I think the Look, the the racially charged language coming from white people like Tarantino himself. I was just saying,
1: there's a whole segment where Tarantino put himself in the movie and says the N-word like a dozen times. And back then it was one of the more quoted lines. And now it's super inappropriate and it's hard to reconcile that. It's hard. It's hard to watch, and I mean, you you see that it's something
2: that comes up later in his career with Django. There are other there are other moments, but it, and I know it, it's something that we should delve into as we try to contextualize his entire career. But I I, I will say that there's an element to this, and probably it's because he's part of it in the way that Woody Allen is part of his storytelling or Clint Eastwood is part of his storytelling, where he is engaging with his own or creating his own mythos as he makes these movies, and because of that, I I think the criticism or the the skepticism about those choices is more germane than it is when it's just fuck this movie because Kevin Spacey is in it. I think it's far more I think it's far more internalized because of Tarantino's active role in every single element of what's on screen.
1: Let's get into it. The 10 categories we're going to go through today. Quentin Tarantino, the director, Quentin Tarantino, the screenwriter, John Travolta performances, Uma Thurman performances, Samuel L. Jackson performances, Bruce Willis performances, black comedy crime film, uh, Palme d'Or winners. That's the best picture award given out of the Cannes Film Festival in France. Uh, top five 1994 films. And then we have another decade dominie. The 1990s is Pulp Fiction, a top five film of the nineties. Oz, are you ready? I am absolutely ready. Let's do this. What was in the briefcase, by the way? You're a God, don't, don't you want to know? I really want to know. Can I, can I tell you the question I actually want to know that's much deeper than what's in the briefcase? Yes. How did they get it? How did Brett and his roommate get it? <laughs> the, the whole point is who gives a shit. But like, to I give credit. a shit. I give a shit. How did Brett up having cheeseburgers for breakfast. How did he end up with the briefcase? If you follow the like
2: Tarantino theory shit where everyone's related and you know like Reservoir Dogs mm-hmm. characters are like the uncles of characters in Pulp Fiction or however it all lines up. I know there's explanations for everything. I'm sure there are like crazed Reddit threads that make the the Pixar theory and the, the James Bond reborn theory look like calm bastions of civil discourse uh, that that I'm sure you can find that answer in. And maybe he'll write a book, like the Once Upon a Time book, that uh, that will answer all of your nagging questions.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looks like me and Vincent caught you boys at breakfast. Sorry about that. What you having? Hamburgers. Hamburgers! The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. What kind of hamburgers? Che- cheeseburgers. No, 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 no. Where'd you get them? McDonald's, Wendy's, Jack in the Box, where? Uh, Big Kahuna Burger. Big Kahuna Burger? That's that Hawaiian burger joint. I hear they got some tasty burgers. I ain't never had one myself. How are they? Good. You mind if I try one of yours? This is yours here, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger.
1: First up, we're going to get two categories out the way with one conversation. Is Pulp Fiction a top five Quentin Tarantino directed film? And is Pulp Fiction a top five Quentin Tarantino screenplay? So I want to start with just some overall thoughts on Tarantino because I think of him and I mean this as a compliment, I promise in the same way. And this is from like the research and, and, all the interviews I've ever seen him have, I think of you, Oz, because there's a a library in your head of every movie that has ever been seen because you've seen so many movies. And anytime I say, oh, I liked how this movie did this, like, oh yeah, this movie from the 20s is actually where that's inspired from. And if you look at the other elements of this, it actually goes back to this era. And like, it's great to have an Oz in your life to give you a history lesson. And Tarantino is that... It's like, he's you, but less sociable, you know? like I mean that as a compliment. I just don't ever want to have a conversation with Quentin. He, he likes feet a lot more than I do, also. Oh, yeah, dude. The the amount of laughter that came out of me <laughs> during the conversation between Vince and Jules while they're about to go take out bread, uh, where they're talking about foot massages and the difference between that and a different form of pleasure. Um, knowing what we know now about Quentin, it's, it's really hard to separate them going forward. Uh having said all that, um you mentioned your issue with this movie about the quibbles and it largely speaks to my issue with tarantino overall and it's that the biggest fan of quentin tarantino is quentin tarantino you can see with how much longer his movies have gotten after his uh, longtime editor sally mankey passed away it's evident in the characters he puts into his movie played by himself and i can understand and give a pass to his character in Django and the amount of times the N word is used in that movie. That is a time where uh, that is a movie about a time when white people were being terrible because white people were being terrible. This movie, there's just no reason there. There's nothing established with his character in this movie to suddenly just dropped the N-word. There's no there's nothing said about it uh, about him to Jules by Jules by anybody else that like he has a past to say this. I don't think he should have a past to say this. And like the other Wait, what were you gonna say? All I was gonna say is when you see some of these
2: really masturbatory Directors put themselves in in movie cameos. It's usually things like M. Night Shyamalan writing himself as a as a misunderstood writer whose work is destined to change the world. Here we have the guy who uses the N-word more than anybody else in a movie full of the N-word.
1: Yeah, for no reason. Why? Like the other bad white person that says the N-word in this movie is a pawn store owner who has a guy tied up in the basement wearing an all-leather suit with a Confederate flag on his wall that wants to watch his friend rape Bruce Willis and Marcellus Wallace. Like, it is established why that person would say horrific things. There's nothing about this other character that establishes why he gets to say these things. And look, we're harping on this at the beginning because the rest is so freaking good in this movie. And there is, like... Flashes of genius throughout like the best example I can come up with no matter when you see this movie for the first time you see John Travolta you see Vince Vega die in the middle of the movie Jimmy shoots him finds him sees him come out the bathroom takes him out you know he's dead at a certain point in the timeline last act of this movie they flash back to the Jules and Vince interrogation of Brett and you see someone's hiding in the bathroom. And even though you know that Vince dies, not now, you still wonder what's going to happen. Like, there's your brilliance. And that's why it's unfortunate. Like, there's your flash of brilliance, Quentin. Not when you cast yourself as a suburban house dad in California that can say the N-word. That's where we see, like, okay, that's what Roger Ebert was talking about. And I haven't even, like, touched on his his writing, Oz. No, you're
2: really right. I I think the... Maybe once upon a time is the is the pinnacle of it, but he uses pop culture as a shorthand for how people interact with one another mm-hmm. in a way that happens in real life. Yep, we we first got to know one another making fun of Chris over his lack of film knowledge and my cousin Vinny. I mean the, this. People bond over sports. They bond over movies. You find common connections through those things and they become part of your shared dialogue. And he, as a as a screenwriter, is one of the first people to, to capture that sort of flow, even if the people do speak in a, a slightly hyper real way. He to capture that flow of common ground and that shortcutting of, you know, belief systems and things of that nature. Like if someone comes up to me right now and says, I, I'm a red pill person who loves fight club. I I know a lot about what your views of the world are. Uh And it's it Tarantino tapped into the sort of shorthand
1: of of screenwriting in a really, really brilliant way. So then I ask you, Oz, and this was easily our most interacted with tweet so far. What are your top five Quentin Tarantino directed films? So I'm going to I'm going to start at first
2: place. Uh, Top dog for me is Inglorious Bastards which is I like wonderful. going from 1 to
1: 5 by the way cuz it's not pulp yep. fiction not pulp fiction. I like that. Okay. We'll, so, you see, have we'll see if 1. Walt
2: makes it? I've got inglorious 1, which is great. It's I I think maybe his best pure tension through dialogue work. I I love it. I think it's his most rewatchable movie too. Uh the next is his best hangout, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Which has uh, it's grown on me immensely since I first saw it. I love it. It's wonderful to just leave on in the background i i just i think it works so well everyone in the cast is just humming it's it's fucking great and i actually think the the book it which deserved all the dunking on it got on film twitter and everything else uh is interesting and worth reading and it's really quick so uh yeah good i would say a beat read but i guess a little late for that uh third for me is pulp fiction
1: okay so that is there we go falls at number three for you
2: all right pulp is on the on the board fourth is Django which I have some I have some quibbles with but I also think it is crackerjack filmmaking I think it might in it's in some ways maybe his maybe his best pure act of direction the way he captures action there is is distinct from how he does it elsewhere I think it's I I think quibbles aside it it's more effective than not uh and my fifth this is the the hot take one. I'm going to go with the hateful eight.
1: You hinted at this a while back that you really like the hateful eight. Okay.
2: I do. I, I like the way it transitions between, you know, sort of western to chamber piece to almost like torture porn across the various acts of the movie. I think the all of the weird stunt casting is pretty cool. I I, I understand why people have objections to this movie, but frankly the, the same objections they have to this movie should just as readily apply to pulp if we're gonna be making sort of cultural objections here. Wait, what are the common
1: what are the common objections to hateful oh, aid that people have to oh my God, pulp? The-
2: Brutality towards women uh, uh, Sexual honest, have, degradation
1: and I gotta be honest I had no problem Which I mean It says something more about me I had no problem with that <laughs> The movie's just too fucking long That's, that's my it, issue it, it is fucking long And there's like a longer Mini-series
2: version On Netflix which Watched I, it
1: too We had a pandemic <laughs> last
2: year There's nothing on I was like alright I have four it,
1: hours To watch your movie Quentin
2: It's very long I actually I saw the the 70 millimeter version mm-hmm. When it came out So did uh, I Yeah Beautiful Still, still but, long uh, Still long, Uh, but perhaps it's more a a criticism of some of his other work. Just one honorable mention I'm going to throw out there because I know you're not going to mention it is uh, his episode of ER, which he directed right after Pulp Fiction (laughs) fucking rocks. It's one of the best episodes of television from the 90s. He did it in one take entirely because he was worried that the people who ran the show would fuck with his episode and he figured if he just gave him one 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 fucking shot there's nothing they can do with it uh and it's really exciting and really well done so i i i assume it i think it's on like hulu or something but that that's worth your 42 minutes
1: how dare you not believe in me that i would have this no of course i've never even seen it i don't think <laughs> i've seen an episode of vr but that's a, a whole other podcast um i want to make something clear before i give my list oz and i don't show each other our selections before we come up with the categories we go our separate ways we fill out our lists over the next week and then we come back and surprise ourselves with what the other person has has said on air and i say that because he has no idea what i'm about to say my number one quentin tarantino directed film is inglorious bastards i think the open the last line of that movie is appropriate this might be my masterpiece. I think it is. As far as Quentin Tarantino movies go, there is not a moment of that movie I would change. It's the most difficult thing he's done. And as a an, as Jewish American, I'm a-okay watching Nazis eat shit for two and a half hours. <laughs> my number two, a fairy tale of sorts. And I was afraid to put it on my list because of recency bias. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, has only grown with me over time as well. You mentioned the hangout aspect of it. Yeah, watching Leo and Brad in the '60s and getting to to live through the nostalgia of old time Hollywood is just a fun time. And same principle with Nazis and Inglorious Bastards. Uh, these hippies that killed a pregnant woman get to eat shit in this alternate universe, and like quite literally eat concrete at a certain point. Which <laughs> I will not. I would be unapologetic <laughs> in how much I enjoyed that scene. My number three is also Pulp Fiction. And I, we mentioned our quibbles aside, I think it's some of the best piece of filmmaking he's ever done and really put him on the map as a, a guy that's going to matter for the next 30 or so years. And then my number four is Django Unchained. We have the same top four us. And I promise you, we did not <laughs> show each other our lists. So wow. here's what I'll say about Django. There is two hours of this movie. Aside from this one part, which I'll get to, there are two hours of this movie that might be my favorite Tarantino movie. Um, there's 10 minutes in the middle where I've skipped every time. I just, no matter how many times I rewatch this, I don't need to hear, because I know a lot of it happens off screen, or even see parts of a slave getting ripped to shreds by dogs. I just don't need that imagery in my life. So I've fast-forwarded this this rewatch and every rewatch I've done in the past. Um, from the moment Schultz frees Freeman, from the moment he frees Django, to the handshake after they make the deal for Hildy, when, when, when Leo and Christoph Waltz shake hands at the house, um, is my favorite Tarantino movie. I will say he then goes on for another 35 minutes that I don't think need to be in the movie. Cause yes. Tarantino can't resist putting himself in his movie. Um, other than that, I think it's, it's, it had an argument to be my number one or number two, uh, for a long time. Um, this is, I mean, we're splitting hairs between four really good movies. And then my last one, Oz, I, I, I'm kind of stuck cause famously or infamously, Quentin thinks that kill bill volume one and two are one movie. Do you consider it one movie? They're
2: unquestionably separate movies. They're released separate years, separate Academy Award consideration. They're, they're separate movies.
1: I say that because like, I would have Kill Bill Volume 2 further down my list. And as a result, Kill Bill Volume 1, at like, one of my favorite action movies, uh, is my number five from like the second scene of this movie you see kiddo show up at vivica a fox's house and then it's on the animation in the third act i guess closer to the middle but the animation scene is great the crazy eight scene is one of the best action scenes ever like quite literally might be my favorite action movie of the decade i haven't i'm getting a look is that a is that a wow you're crazy look that was a. are you crazy or not face why what did i miss
2: I don't know, we just talked about The Dark Knight the other day and I'm the Dark Knight. I enjoy Knight The hater. Dark
1: Knight for the the Joker. Like we talked about it. That movie is heat with the, the Joker. Like I, the performances I enjoy. The action I enjoy significantly more in Kill Bill. Like I haven't done my list obviously. Maybe we we'll, that'll happen on this podcast, but um yeah, I one of my one of my faves for sure. Um as we now transition to screenwriting, um I think it's important to note his longtime editor, Sally Mankey died in a tragic hiking accident in 2009. So the last movie she did for him was *Inglorious Bastards. Um, the three movies he's released this decade since her passing, uh, Django Unchained, two hours, 47 minutes. The Hateful Eight, two hours, 46 minutes. And then another one over four hours. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 245. Um I go back to what I said earlier about him loving himself some him with his screenwriting. He does not think there is a piece of dialogue that needs to be cut. Do you agree with that assessment, Oz? I- I'm gonna defend one thing here, which okay, is that editing
2: and this this came up with the with the Irishman a lot. Editing is not just trimming it's not getting it into a certain runtime editing is a lot more about pacing it's about the intersection of scenes it's about knowing exactly where to cut the camera it's about knowing exactly where to pick up the camera uh i, I just the fact that a movie is long should not make it dispositive that it's fantastically edited uh because it's just the, the propulsion of the editing the way things are stitched together is it, it's so much more than runtime uh, they i think I gather he actually filmed like six hours of usable footage for once upon a time in Hollywood. And I know some of the performers have joked that there's like a 19 hour cut out there, but I, 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 it has been massively trimmed and it, it is perhaps a strike on his writing that there's just so much shit. And you know, I, I, whatever, whatever the, the rubric is, it's like a page is a minute in, in screenplay things. This dude shows up with like 250 page screenplays. So What do you expect? There's just there's too much material to cover because he he is in love with the written
1: word. Fair. I guess just me personally, I think his sweet spot is 230. And look, I have I have two of the movies that I think are too long in my top five. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Django are great pieces of filmmaking. I just think there's 15 minutes in both of those movies that... Don't need to be there. Even if they are brilliant material, I felt the runtime once we hit a certain minute length in a very dialogue-heavy experience. Um, look, this is me personally. There's Give me more Netflix breakdowns of four parts of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I'm all in for versions like that. Um, having said all of that, my top five Quentin Tarantino uh, screenplays, as as we mentioned, are not going to look that much different from my Quentin Tarantino uh, directed films because four of five are matches in fact the top four are all the same just in a different order my number one is still *Inglorious bastards i think the opening scene of that movie is one of the best scenes in in movie history i think the the tension that's built and the introduction to hans landa especially when you find out what's going on underneath that house is just petrifying and knowing the stakes because it's history just adds to it and makes you really hate what's going on and sets you up for a roller coaster of a movie. Uh, and then, like the scene in the middle of the movie in the in the bar where they're literally fighting a war with words while guns are being pointed at groins. Uh, it, it's one of one of my favorite uh, pieces of filmmaking that he's done, especially since most of it's in a different language. Uh, number two in this category is Pulp Fiction. So I switch things up a little bit. Uh, the the characters that he creates because when you really think about what happens in this movie it's really not much like two guys go get a briefcase then they go get breakfast another guy th- loses a fight and then gets in a car accident uh, or wins a fight and gets in a car accident and in the middle of that two people go out to dinner one person overdoses like that's three things that happen in this two hour 30 minute movie and i'm never bored because of the characters that and conversations that these characters have. Um, I think Quentin just kind of nails it in the the introduction to what brilliance could be. Number three is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, The fake TV show that is fully written out and then Leo messes up on his line. Uh, You almost thought that uh, the movie stopped for a second until you realized what was going on. Um, all the scenes with with Brad Pitt at the ranch when he goes to find Bruce Dern and wonders what's going on, and then all the the scenes of Leo and and Pitt in the car are are pretty pretty fun as well. And then Django's my number four, almost specifically for every line that Leonardo DiCaprio says in this movie. I'm still upset that Christoph Waltz got the supporting Nam win for this or for supporting actor win for this because i think this was leo's i should have been leo's first oscar if you asked me and then my number five is movie i haven't said yet and it's a movie he didn't direct and it's true romance the uh romantic comedy uh crime comedy i don't know what you really call the genre there uh directed by tony scott starring patricia arquette and christian slater um you really see the the glimpses of tarantino's dialogue and and the way he will write characters throughout that matched with tony Scott tony scott's um direction style and i just i have a lot of fun every time i I revisit that film okay eyes your top five quentin tarantino screenplays I
2: am sticking with the same top two as I had for director. So Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you absolutely nailed it with the scenes you picked from Inglorious Bastards. I know the other week you you had that opening scene with Hans Landa mm-hmm. as one of your great opening scenes of all time. A totally meritorious selection uh, and the writing sells the hell out of it. And you really nailed it on the the foreign language element too. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood is amazing. Uh, I just want to shout out Julia Butter, who absolutely kills it in that. And when there's this young girl I've never seen before who's taking scenes away from a peak of his powers, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, awesome. And it's a tribute to the writing because that character is beautifully written. Uh, three is where I start to change a little bit. Uh, I'm going with Jackie Brown. Wow. In My three spot. I think it's a better, I think it's a better written movie than directed movie. I think it benefits from the fact that it comes from a, an Elmore Leonard crime novel. Perhaps we'll be hearing about Elmore Leonard movies again, a few times on this podcast, but uh, I, I think it—I think it's helped by that. It, give, it gives the structure a little more crispness than his work tends to have, and I think the interplay of Leonard's tighter storytelling craft with Tarantino's gift of gab works pretty well. Four is Pulp Fiction. It's full of super memorable stuff. I will acknowledge docking it a little bit for some of the uh, problematic quibbles I've had with it. That just—they just don't sit the same way in 2021 that they they did 30 years ago and my fifth place for the exact same reasons as you boringly enough uh, is Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> okay. which it's a great screenplay movie. It's got a bunch of very good performances in it. it. It definitely has some filmmaking quirks and quibbles, which are what happens when you're working on a shoestring budget. But uh, yeah, I think it's fantastically written and, and really a, a statement of purpose of who this guy could be. I mean, it says something I, I know he got a lot of them when they were sort of on the downswing of their careers, but off of Reservoir Dogs, he was able to get this sort of cast for this movie. And I mean, these these are, you know, Travolta, still a big name. Jackson was on the upswing. Willis was a megastar. I mean, Die Hard with Vengeance came out this year and was one of the highest or the the next year and was one of the highest grossing movies of 95. I mean, these are still big stars who are willing to come aboard a second time director's movie. I, I think it, it speaks volumes to the sort of writing that he showed in Reservoir Dogs.
1: Honorable mention, so I, I think... Yeah the top five or top 10 directed will actually be our tarantino lists and i think that'll be more fun for people so five i guess six through ten what do you have for tarantino uh six
2: for me is going to be kill bill volume one okay uh seven for me is going because for much the same reasons you said uh it's good action um reservoir dogs is going to be my seven uh, Jackie Brown is going to be my eight Kill Bill volume two is going to be my number nine and death proof by an almost indescribable margin is my number 10. I think it's, it's almost unwatchable. I think grindhouses, I think grindhouses are really cool concept. I think it's, it's awesome that that existed and someone Weinstein put the money into putting that thing (laughs) out. Uh, Even the trailers in the middle, the whole thing is really cool. I just don't think death proof works at all, and maybe I I don't have a soft enough spot in my heart for long form car stunts.
1: uh, But it just it does nothing for me. So we have the same top four: Inglorious Pulp, uh, Inglorious Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pulp Fiction, Django. I have Kill Bill Volume One at number five. You have Hateful Eight at number five. Yep, I have Jackie Brown at six. I have Reservoir Dogs at seven. I have Volume Two at eight. I have The Hateful Eight at nine. Now, I want to be clear. I think one through nine are all movies I enjoy. Like yeah. to say, like the Who It of The Hateful Eight is very enjoyable. And even while I need multiple sittings to to watch it, I enjoy nine of Tarantino's movies, and then Death Proof. Which you, for everything you said, I think I've seen it once, and I saw enough to know I don't ever need to revisit as a with a clearer mind. Um, yeah, the, is he a, a genius? Is he a, a master craftsman of this industry? Us, like, is, you know, are we allowed to put that designation on before we move on? Yeah, definitely. I look, I,
2: I think it's cool that Ebert nailed it with Pulp Fiction. He is capable of making a bad movie because he did, but it's because he makes big swings. He mm-hmm. tried to make this old fashioned car stunt B movie and the the thing just doesn't work. But he also, he just does weird shit. I mentioned the ER episode before he did a, a two part season finale arc on CSI, which is the only time I've ever watched CSI in my life. Uh, it's it just, I think it's fun that he chooses to put his energy into doing some of this weird shit because he thinks it's interesting or guest directing on Sin City, you know, all, all sorts of stuff like that, because it's what he wants to do. He likes doing nerdy movie shit, so he's going to go do nerdy movie shit. I, I think that's fantastic, and I I do. I think quibbles aside, and he's, he's not my favorite director, but I think he's masterful uh, in his approach to what he, the sort of film that he wants to make. You think I can have a sip of that?
0: Be my guest I gotta know what a $5 shake tastes like You can use my straw I don't have cooties Yeah, but maybe I do Cooties I can handle Alright damn, it's a pretty fucking good milkshake Told you I don't know if it was worth $5 but It was pretty fucking good <laughs>
1: Next up, we go to the cast First, we start with John Travolta, and this was a very important movie for the adult version of John Travolta. Um, is Pulp Fiction, a top five John Travolta performance. So this is a guy that was nominated for an Oscar in 1977 for Saturday Night Fever. Then again, he's nominated in 1994 for Vincent Vega. I, where was he in his career at this point as uh, in 1994? Cuz this is looked at as a movie that created a comeback that you could if you want to go extreme that saved Gavito's career. Where was he?
2: Yeah, I mean you you really nailed it. The guy the guy's career had very much fallen off a cliff. I mean he just didn't have the success critically or creatively that he saw through the seventies, even, even his good work. And I think there's, there's some extremely uh, good work that he did in the eighties. It's just not, it's not in movies that people really care about. And, you know, you get, he he gets sort of smeared with the time spent doing like, you know, look who's talking movies or or stuff like that, instead of any real credit for good work and things like blowout or urban cowboy that has merit. It's all just, it's all just kind of left behind. Um, and look, he he was not as active through the eighties as well, which which never helps when half of your credits for a decade are Look Who's Talking sequels. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's very clear that this brought back what had once been seen as a as a generational talent to the mainstream. And then he made a lot of really Great career choices <laughs> after that in the
1: 90s. Listen, he hasn't met John Woo yet, so his his better stuff hasn't been brought to the forefront. <laughs> uh, wait for it, Oz. Don't worry. You get to go first this time. What are your top five John Travolta performances? So my number one is, is by
2: an enormous margin. I, I think it's easily the best performance of his career. I think it's one of the best performances of the 80s, uh, and that is the movie Blowout, which... Okay. Uh, came up in our best movies of 1981 list a couple or last week, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's a Brian De Palma movie about a sound technician who witnesses a murder while he is out picking up sounds. Actually, he sees a blowout of a car tire. And then when he's going back and reviewing his sounds, realizes that the tire was shot out and becomes compelled to investigate what's happened here. And it is really great. Dark, compelling work from Travolta It shows a dark side that i'm I'm not sure he ever really taps into maybe that movie where he plays like an obsessed fad with Devin Sowell, which is the to worst it. movie don't, ever Don't, don't ruin but, uh, my
1: list, Oz. We'll get to it. <laughs> oh my
2: God. I hope that's on your list. Don't worry. Uh, so blowout's my <laughs> number one. Uh, two is Grease, which is just an iconic... I know it's kind of trashy, but it's an iconic musical that he is absolutely iconic in. How
1: dare you uh, call it trashy?
2: It's fun. Uh-huh. He's good in it. He has the song and dance chops. Grease is two. Pulp Fiction is three. Uh, he's, he's magnetic for most of his time here, though honestly, he's not my He's not close to my top dog in this movie who we'll we'll get to in a few minutes uh, for fuck it. It's face off. I, I wanted to I, I wanted to treat this serious, but I, I can't help it. I love that movie passionately. I think it's just the pinnacle of 90s trash. And it only works because him and Cage are so committedly fucking ridiculous that I I. I'm all in face off is my number four uh, and my number five is a pretty a, a sort of similar performance to pulp actually, which is get shorty, which is also based on an Elmore Leonard story and is about a, a sort of fixer who becomes embroiled in the movie industry to shake down a debt riddled Gene Hackman. It's a really good, compelling stuff that they made a not so great sequel to like 15 years later.
1: So, it's on either of our lists, but what are your thoughts on Saturday Night Fever? It's it's a movie that exists. Um, so I've, so you're seen not it. a fan,
2: don't like it? I, I I It is very much of an era that I'm very glad that I was not yet born for. And, uh, yeah, he, he can move. He, he can dance. But we, we've got pulp and grease for, for proof of concept there on my list.
1: This movie made $237 million the yeah. year Star Wars came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Just, that was I, a huge year too. Spider yeah. Love Me killed it that year. That was a big year, but
1: uh, yeah, no, that's just it's just not it's not there for me. Okay, <laughs> I, I think for the same reasons, I also don't have it there. My one through five, um, we have some crossover again, Oz, um, and you're right to not put Pulp number one. You just picked the wrong number one because as serious as we try to be on this episode, Face Off is the greatest. <laughs> john travolta performance yes. of all time not even just for the fact that half the movie he's playing himself <laughs> but the other half of the movie he's playing Nicolas cage so yeah i'm i, I would put that up there with uh, heath ledger's joker with one of the greatest <laughs> on screen performances like he basically has to do what uh lupita Nyong'o does in us and play two different characters throughout that's the prestige and just wait till we do a Nicolas Cage episode. Okay. When it's just oh, face yeah. off and then face off the rewatch as my entire top <laughs> five. Um, my number two is also Grease, and it's a soundtrack that I man wore out as a kid. And part of it is because my parents love that movie. Um, and strangely like a holiday movie for me, which I know there's like no Christmas scene, but like when I get together with my family, the, it's we all put on grease and it's awesome. Uh, I guess it's more of a Thanksgiving movie than anything else. But yeah, um, the I remember I know every single word to Sandy. Let's um, just speaks wait, to wait, thanks, we Mom Regalis. Now, no, but uh, <laughs> thank you, Mom, for putting Danny's uh, that character and that message of that movie into my life as a kid. Anyway. <laughs> Three is where Pulp Fiction shows up. Um, Vincent Vega is. Do you believe he's brothers with the Matson character? Sure. From Reservoir the, Dogs, the the, the Tarantino the, the, theory. <laughs> the Tarantino Reddit tells me
2: as much. So yeah. yes, I believe that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. He's really great in this movie. Blowout's my number four for every reason that you said. So we have the same four just in a different order. I have blowout, swap blowout, and face off, and that's Oz's top four. And then my number five. Is off the beaten path, and I talked about true romance before, and how much I love Tony Scott movies. Um, They did a remake. I think it was in the late two thousands or early twenty tens of the Taking of Pelham One Two Three. I like that movie. That fucking movie. The like, <laughs> it's corny at first, and then he kills somebody. He kills the conductor like twenty minutes into the movie, and it's like, oh my god, like there are stakes now, and he's like low key menacing, but then yeah, also like goofy villain in a movie so like there's this weird Gandolfini performance where he plays the mayor and he's opposite Denzel and is like getting him to confess that he's committed a crime and it's I just one of the more fun Tony Scott action movies from from this era with like Unstoppable and all these other ones um yeah so that's my number those are my top five uh the honorable mentions what do you got uh you know I I I will
2: say it's a very, very bad movie. I, I mentioned it a moment ago. It's called The Fanatic. I have it on but, mine. Okay.
1: Uh, oh, it's like I, the I, room bad, though, where it's so bad. It's like fascinating. It,
2: it is. It is the. It is Nicolas Cage talking about the bees level batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. He's like the worst comic con piece of shit who becomes obsessed with uh, with a character. He has this crazy accent. This movie is fucking bonkers, and I strongly recommend that you drink it with a very large or you drink it, you watch it while drinking uh, a very with with a very large alcoholic beverage to to get through it, and you can have some fun with it that way. My my serious uh, wreck for him. I think the movie is bad, but he's quite quite compelling in it. Uh, is a civil action. Mm which is a movie about a a lawyer who sort of throws away his career trying to do the right thing for a community that's been impacted
1: by uh folks uh taking by folks taking advantage of the environment. So one of my own mentions is also The Fanatic. More just cuz like we need to talk about who directs this movie. So Fred Durst, the lead singer of Limp <laughs> Bizkit, directs this movie and there's a scene where the dad is in the car with the, the son and he plays Limp Biscuit like a CD and then talks about how you kids don't appreciate music anymore. Not e- no meta whatsoever, blatantly saying, Why don't you appreciate Limp Biscuit the way you young whippersnappers should? Which juxtaposed that to the Woodstock documentary, which basically blames Limp Biscuit for Woodstock, um, is just very weird and fascinating. Um, My honorable mention, surprisingly, is look who's talking. I actually dig the first one. I think it's fun. Him and Christy Alley has great chemistry. The Bruce Willis pretending to be the baby. Uh, It's a decent cable rewatch. So, An interesting career, Mr. John Travolta.
0: was a teenage wedding, and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did
2: truly love the Madame Moselle. And now the young
1: Monsieur and Madonna Next up chapel, yeah. is Pulp Fiction, a top five Uma Thurman performance. So the difficulty, at least for me, in talking about her career, is that you could look at Pulp Fiction and make the argument. It's one of the best things to happen to her. Like it's it's her Oscar nomination. The entire sequence at the restaurant with Vince is so charming. The twist competition is iconic. The overdose sequence is convincing. Uh, it's all really good stuff, and yet it could also be considered the worst thing that ever happened to her, knowing what we know about the the Weinstein cloud of it all. And then you add in like the other work in her career is kind of mediocre you she's got some near misses as far as casting goes she was runner up to to Kate Winslet for Rose and Titanic she uh there's another one in in the 2000s that I'm forgetting that was pretty pretty big when I saw it but like her other big collaboration with Quentin is probably the other big role that she's known for and during that production she got into a car accident and Miramax wouldn't show her the footage because they didn't want her to sue them, so like it's tough for me to really criticize, like what eventually happens to her in her career and some of the misses and some of the career choices that happen. Because I don't know if I necessarily have a top five of Uma Thurman performances. Uh, what are your thoughts, Oz? I will say I I'm I'm not a huge fan. Of Uma Thurman In this movie Or just in general
2: I, I In general okay. I, I think she's I think she's fine in this I think she's fine in other Things I, I don't think she ever gets To be much more than Fine um, I, I just I, I don't find her To be all that Compelling an actress And I will say that I've seen a lot of movies That she's in Looking through her filmography And it was It was Difficult for me To come up with With five performances That, that I felt Anything about uh, especially compared to the other actors on this, this list. I mean, Bruce Willis, who we'll get to in a minute, was very difficult for me. Uh, this was, Ooh, this, this, oof. I, <laughs> I, I look, I, I, you're, you're, you're thinking of Lord of the Rings, by the way, she almost got the live That's Tyler what she
1: was. she was almost live Tyler. There you go.
2: Good Lord. I, I, I Maybe you disagree but I sit here and think to myself Liv Tyler is not the best part of that movie but holy shit that would be a downgrade. If she was in Titanic that movie would not have made 600 billion dollars and changed everyone's lives and made everyone cry and everything else. What a what a downgrade. Kate Winslet to Uma Thurman would be.
1: I don't disagree. It's more I guess I'm giving I not her the benefit of the doubt. There's just so much baggage surrounding what happened with her and Miramax that I don't know how much her ability is just like you wouldn't have gotten roles anyway throughout your career if you never ran into these to this person. But I also like, yeah, I have three movies written down for Uma Thurman, and then it's just like, yeah, pick two more. Uh, that's my top five. Like I don't have a list of Uma Thurman performances for for this for this uh, top five. But like she's found a home a bit on on Broadway now and some television roles. Uh she's very politically active in her career, and you know, her and Twinton have apparently made up, and she said I'll, I'd work with him again if the opportunity presented it. But yeah, I the, the reading about what happened with her accident and then what's happened with her and Miramax just it it's it's tough for me to to reconcile. However, top five Uma Thurman performances, I go Kill Bill Volume One, Kill Bill, ah, uh, Kill Bill Volume One, Pulp Fiction. Kill Bill Volume 2. And then I I'm sorry if this is cheating. I don't have a four and a five. <laughs> like, if you want to say Dangerous Lia yeah, Zones, I think she's the best part of the Batman and Robin Clooney version. Like, Poison Ivy's, like. The only one that knows what movie they're in, Um, but like my my super ex girlfriend, a decent rom com, I would watch with my girl, my girlfriend, anytime. But like the producers, like a fine movie, but not like a movie I'm ever gonna watch again. So like there, there's my Uma Thurman performance. However, if we talk about her in this movie a little bit, um, like I think she is like she gets the poster and she. When she pops up on screen and the the way she makes Travolta uncomfortable and like the overdose scene obviously is is it's weirdly like fun to watch because especially when you know she's going to survive it and how she gets to the under other side of it, um, yeah her her performance in this movie I like at least. Uh, do you disagree? Yeah. No, I think she's I think she's perfectly good
2: in this movie okay um i I will say one one thing as as myth-making goes the inspiration for kill bill is lady snowblood and she could say whatever the fuck she wants in interviews but that's where that came from. It's oh. a Japanese movie. Uh, it's even a two part thing. Uh, it, it, that's the inspiration for Kill see? Bill. This is why you're my
1: Quentin. OK, however, so she and I, I see you, have said that. I see you, Uma. But, like, but Quentin uh, said it too. He might have said like, hey, look at this. The, what is it called? That, Snowblood? That's because
2: she's Lady Snowblood. What, yeah, that, maybe that's he said in I saw
1: Lady Snowblood and then Uma, what do you think? And she was like, yeah, let's uh, flesh this out and make a different character maybe that's where it came from because he had, he went into his library of 40,000 movies and said, Oh, I know exactly where yes. this one is. Um, all right. So I limited myself to one
2: kill bill movie okay. just because impressive so, then. So go ahead. So this, this, uh, it, all right. So my number one is going to be kill bill volume two. Wow. You like her better than that one. I think she has more to do dramatically. I think she's actually, I think she holds her own against Carradine. Who's wonderful in that movie. Um, It's just more dialogue-driven. The first one is, is, as you've said, more of just a straight action movie, and there's just less acting at play there Mm -hmm. for me. So I I have Kill Bill Volume 2 as my top, Uma Thurman, I have Pulp Fiction as my number two. I have Nymphomaniac Volume 1. We have another Volume 1, Volume Mm 2 thing here as as my number three, which is a Lars von Trier two-part movie about uh, a Nymphomaniac girl sort of uh, deep, you know, dealing with the the consequences and and sort of wrestling with uh, her life through sexual partners, and uh, I, Uma Thurman is a relatively small part of those movies, but I think she's effective
1: and doesn't throw off the mojo of what are otherwise pretty good films. Can I just cut stop you for a second because? All the Lars von Trier stuff she does, I had to tap out. I just... I, I really... I get so uncomfortable with... And I'm not someone that gets uncomfortable yeah. with movies in general, but... His like the house Jack built is one of the more disturbing watches I've ever seen, and I'm someone that again will watch Saw, will watch Hostel, will watch some of the gorier horror movies. That's just that's not horror. This is this is it, the, for me. It just doesn't work. I No, I actually uh, there's something about the way von Trier makes movies, and
2: I, I don't want to derail us into a Lars von Trier podcast mm-hmm. that's never going to happen. But uh, that really gives us sort of like emotional emptiness that people find really upsetting. I know that my I watched Melancholia, which is the very good Kirsten Dunst, Lars von Trier movie, his best if you're going to try one of these things. Uh, I think we saw it, my wife and I saw it 10 years ago, and she still randomly will talk uh, just out of the blue about, you know, moments that she found so upsetting or that have hung with her so much from that movie. So, uh, yeah, uh, Lars von Trier. Dark, dark shit. Uh, yeah, but yeah nymphoma- Nymphomaniac pretty pretty good and she's pretty good in it the, the last two are mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the producers i'm i'm so putting in my fourth spot okay which is which is quite bad but she's reasonably compelling as the it, it, it's the famous broadway musical she's reasonably compelling as the sort of femme fatale-esque character and my fifth place for her is be cool which is the quite not good sequel to get shorty also based on an elmore leonard novel that reunites her and Travolta which is nice in concept and the best thing about that movie is uh, The Rock doing the monologue from Bring <laughs> It On and that's <laughs> worth finding on YouTube because it's really good. Uh, otherwise, yeah Uma Thurman, not, not for me.
1: Dare I say we don't have any honorable mentions? No. No, no. Okay. <laughs> this one we will. I think the next two we will.
0: What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? <laughs> What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English in what? What? English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time.
1: Goddamn. Is Pulp Fiction, a top five Samuel L. Jackson performance. Um, I I a man who made the word motherfucker, um, one you want to hear in every film. And to the extent where when Avengers infinity war has its moment at the end with the dusting and then the post credit scene shows up and he goes, mother Everybody laughed because it's finally Nick Fury saying what Samuel L. Jackson has been wanting to say. I'm sick and tired of these motherfucking superheroes on this motherfucking planet. Uh, <laughs> it's weird how it, it seems like overacting at times, which is the yelling, but he's perfected it while Bill being like that vocal and that powerful with his, with his, with his voice. Um, what are your thoughts on Samuel L. Jackson specifically as, as Jules in this movie?
2: Uh, I think he's amazing. I think he is far and away the best part of this movie. I think every second he is on screen in this is, is absolutely magnetic. I I adore his performance here. I think it's one of the best supporting performances of the entire decade. And I love him. I I love Samuel L. Jackson generally for all the reasons you said, but I think I, I, I particularly appreciate And maybe it's as we look at Mr. Willis in the next spot, uh, Samuel Jackson has found a a gear again in the last like ten years or so where he's bringing motivation. We we joke about superhero bullshit, like he's really engaged in Captain Marvel. He could show up, go through the motions, let them do de aging tech, and call it a day. He he's giving a real performance there. He's got real chemistry with Brie Larson, even even in like something like Kong Skull Island. The guy is showing up and bringing it. And my prediction is that if there's if there's one sort of overdue actor that I can buy stock in to win an Oscar this decade, it's going to be Samuel Jackson. I think he'll have his moment where the industry says we should have given this motherfucker an Oscar uh, a great many years ago, and I think he is overdue for that sort of career recognition and i think the fact that he's still bringing it especially when you see like the shit that john travolta and bruce willis are doing these days really speaks to his quality as an actor the guy's like 74 years old and he's like doing seven marvel movies in five years or whatever whatever the actual count is uh and those things are a fucking ordeal for for the actors so i i i love sam i think he's amazing i think he's killer in pulp am i first on this one uh, yeah, your turn first So, uh, no surprise here, Pulp Fiction is my number one Samuel L. Jackson performance It's it's not close I think he is great, peak of his powers And, you know, motherfucker is a word that can only be associated with Samuel L. Jackson at this point He is, without question, the greatest swearer in movie history mm, wow the, I'm sure we'll get to that someday. Even,
1: but- that should have been a category. Is this the, <laughs> wow.
2: That's a great no, uh, call. Wow.
1: Right. Right. Kent is coming for that on television. Oh yeah. There you go.
2: Uh, all right. My number two is hard eight, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's, uh, breakthrough early film. He plays sort of the heavy in the movie. It's about these, uh, degenerate gamblers and they're, debts and it's a it's a young early Samuel Jackson but you start to see the the charisma and the sort of menace that he can bring uh heart it's worth tracking down um my number five is a I I know that this is a strange choice and I think it's because I'm the only person who's seen this movie because no one got Apple TV plus until Ted Lasso was a thing oh wow
1: I thought he was Go ahead. I thought he was amazing in The Banker. I did too. And I just that is a, a wild, wild I'm not like a bad call, I'm just like stunned that that's where you went. Wow. He's he's so charismatic, he's so charming. It's the sort of movie that if
2: it were released in like 1997, he would have been the shoe-in best actor winner. Um it's it's about basically the, these two black men who start the first black-run bank. True story, and by the way. It's Based it's not really a true story. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's worth tracking down. And he is absolutely magnetic in it. And
1: had Apple known how to run a campaign at that point, I, I think he would have gotten an Oscar nomination. So what happened? It was supposed to come out in 2019 and be eligible for that award season. Then something came out about the person that the characters are based off of. So they pushed it into 2020. Then the whole industry went kind of haywire because of the pandemic. And so they were just like, all right, we'll just release it on Apple TV plus.
2: Yeah. They'd already, they'd already done the qualifying screenings in 2019, the Academy award stuff, but they sort of, they, they didn't do a good job of the campaign. It didn't get any real heat. Uh, And then when, yeah, there was a controversy about the real Anthony Mackie character. I, I, can't I'm sorry I can't remember the details I know it was particularly icky, and they shelved the movie for a couple of months before kind of releasing it with a whimper, uh, which of course contributes to why nobody has seen it. But uh, <laughs> pretty much everything on Apple TV Plus is good these days. But The Banker, very good stuff, worth tracking down. Uh, my number four, and I try to avoid repeating directors with these actor things, but I'm I'm gonna go with the Hateful Eight. Uh
1: huh. I figured if you had that on your on your Quentin top five. This was going to end up there. There's another character I, I, I thought about putting on my top five.
2: It, it's a very Quentin performance. Mm-hmm. It leans very much into what Sam does well and his star charisma. We've already talked about hateful eight, but I, I think it's, I think it's very good work. Uh, and my fifth is uh, a little off the beaten path, though. I, I, I saw you, you threw it up on the final review pod Twitter for the top five performances, which is black snake moan. Which is, it's just a really strange movie about a man who has a a black man who has a white woman chained in his yard. I, I don't really want to delve into the plot too deeply Mm-mm. because it's actually really worth seeing. He is incredibly, uh, as usual, charismatic, but he's super compelling in it. Uh, black Snake Moan, good movie.
1: I will second what Oz says. I'm actually looking up if Black Snake Moon is streaming anywhere so people can go see it. Um two thousand and six film that's now playing on Paramount Plus if you have it, or Amazon Prime if you have a premium subscription. Uh and two ninety nine if you want to watch it on Apple TV. Um okay. And it's,
2: so it's the guy who made Hustle and Flow, which is also oh, so a good
1: movie. Even better. Um so I agree with everything you said about Sam in this movie. Jules Winfield is one of the I think we when I go to like the In Memoriam. Clip of what people will see, and I think it will be him pointing a gun at Brett, saying, "Say what again? Say what? Yep. I double, I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker! Like that is what we will remember him for, and then him quoting Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, the New Living Translation. By the way, shout out to my dad, Pastor Hiram. If you're listening, I made sure I clarified which version of that verse is read in Pulp Fiction. Um, I I think that's what we'll most see him in this movie, and it's why uh, it's also my number one for Samuel L. Jackson. The it, this was the first movie I wrote down, and then the rest it was just figuring out what ranked. Uh, now here's where I have four different number different movies in my five. Yes, so that makes Finally! this fun. Yeah, uh, my number two, and I've hinted at this with you about what this movie means to me. But I think the second best performance to me that he's ever done is Coach Carter, where he plays uh, a basketball coach that moves to a a school and uh, moves to San Francisco uh, to Richmond High School. Uh, it's based off the true story of a coach that did the same thing. He goes back to his old school, I should say, to be the basketball coach. All of a sudden, they start winning. His son joins on the team, becomes an All-American. Uh, they're actually in the same district in the movie. It's a basketball player named Ty Crane. Um, in real life, it's Tyson Chandler. Once a Nick, always a Nick. Um, the Uh, Performance he gives as Coach Carter. Not only do I think that's one of the better basketball coaches that you've ever seen, but it's so real that my basketball coach, when I was in high school, used to yell to the baseline after we all saw Coach Carter. So it was influential to my life as well. (laughs) Um, My number three is Unbreakable, as Mr. Glass opposite Bruce Willis, who's also in this movie. Um, My number four... Pick one. I had to pick a Nick Fury performance because I think what he's meant to the MCU is important, but he's always been such a minor character throughout. So I went with either Avengers or Winter Soldier because in Winter Soldier, you actually get to see him do some stuff where he um, uses like one of the. Um, shield pens to carve out the bottom of the car and then carve out the street so you can go into the Subaru and escape because the Winter Soldier is attacking him. If you want to give him that, fine. Um, I still think his There Was an Idea speech is one of the more like goosebump inducing speeches uh, in the MCU, which is why I had to put a Nick Fury film on there. And then On Brand, and it'll come up in a second, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, Those movies are really fun, even... Uh, this one at least came out in the 90s even though it's an 80s movie in the 90s Oz uh, so die Hard of the vengeance I'll put it at number five um, any honorable mentions
2: uh, well you should put Captain Marvel which would have
1: easily been my my MCU pick I just pick, definitely where- don't I, just I really don't like that movie I, yes fair that probably could have been he's good at it he's good at it that's- yes that's fair
2: uh, I, I will say that my my guilty favorite Samuel L. Jackson movie is Deep Blue Sea
0: and his, <laughs> too, his,
2: <laughs> his iconic moment uh, in Deep Blue Sea. I saw that movie opening weekend in a theater and had no fucking idea. It blew my mind. Uh, I, I I have to imagine if people have been on the internet, they know, but I won't actually say it. Uh, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson is amazing, uh, spoofing on himself and that, like he does in a movie that I, I imagine you're going to say in two seconds, so I... <laughs> I will leave it to you. Uh, you know, I you know the one other thing I'll say. I, I just I I love this like late life version of Sam Jackson who shows up and is just pretty good in everything. Like even the the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, mm-hmm. not a very good movie. He's showing up and he's funny. He's bringing it in that. He's good in his like fifteen minutes in the Protege, the Martin Campbell movie. Like I just he he shows up with with a gear of motivation, which really mm-hmm. I. I I certainly will not be that motivated when I'm
1: in my 70s. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Yes. Enough is enough. Oz. I'm sick and tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. I have a theory that during the production of this movie, he was so fed up with the mediocre talent he was working with. That Tim Riggins gets his dick bit off by a snake in that movie. I I said what I said. (laughs) Um, He was actually sick and tired of the movie in general. And just started firing a real gun to open up windows so he the set could end, because he actually does look <laughs> fed up in that movie. And then, the only other honorable mention, I'll say, it's a very small role, so I couldn't like realistically put it on his top five, but him and The Rock and the other guys is hilarious. And I knew you were going to say that. When they jump off the building, is still one of the funnier moments when they land. It's like... Oh, wow, that happened. And they flashed to the funeral scene. <laughs> <seat. laughs> Were they aiming for the bushes? What bushes? There's, there's a flat fault to concrete. Anyway, Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson.
0: Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers and you will know my name is the lord when i lay my vengeance upon thee next up
1: another fun one is pulp fiction a top five bruce willis performance so I'm sure you struggled as much as I did, Oz, with how many John McClane's to put on in this on this list. There's a joke that Jeff Frost told in the Comedy Central Roast of Bruce Willis. He says that it's your blockbuster Armageddon that will always be the perfect metaphor for your career. Because in the end, you got destroyed by the rock. And the <laughs> prototype of like muscular bald leading action hero has been done to death whether it be by Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Vin Diesel or um, multiple other stars going forward that it doesn't require a lot of range and yet you look at Willis's career and there is some really good performances as well I ask you Oz, what are your thoughts on Bruce Willis so uh, Bruce Willis is one of my all-time
2: favorite actors. Okay, I do not I I want to be clear that the word favorite is not the word best. It's not remotely the word best. I I grew up in love with Bruce Willis's shtick. Some people, for some people, it's Arnold or Stallone. For me, it's Bruce Willis. I still watch the unfathomably bad Bruce Willis movies that come out every like three or four months straight to. Video releases where he shows up for two days, clearly doesn't film any scenes with anybody else, and gets paid his like $400,000 to, I don't know, get more plastic surgery so his face moves even less. But uh, (laughs) uh, it's actually such a bummer because he had such an interesting defined face even back in Die Hard, like the lines in his face are part of what make him feel so lived in and expressive and he's carved it all away so he just looks like this bizarro like walking phallus at this point and i i i'm so bummed out by what bruce willis is today yeah, in yeah. movies even when he, even when he shows up in like motherless brooklyn and is pretty good uh, it's just it's like tainted by knowing his distaste for the, the craft that he has chosen to make his career, uh, it it makes me profoundly sad. That said, uh, there's a lot of Bruce Willis stuff I like, and I will choose not to feel guilty about it for for today's purposes.
1: Look, okay, let me go through my top five, because I had trouble saying if I like him in this movie or not, because, like, he throws the... Fu- well, no, oh, wow, Oz. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, okay. I agree, I agree. <laughs> I'm stunned. I really didn't think you were going to say that. So, I this is this is a moment of pure this is originality awesome. I'll just say it like is is Pulp fiction the top five Bruce Willis performance? It's not on my list like i I had to think about whether or not the Bruce Willis part of this movie actually affects me, and if you just put. If you put the rock in this in his place, is it a different movie? <laughs> to the point where when he gets captured, I'm almost like I I kind of don't care whether your character lives or dies or not. And I think it also speaks to just to go back, like the strength of the Samuel Jackson performance, the the Vin, the the John Travolta performance, the uh, Uma Thurman, like all these other people that I care way more about when they're on screen. To then have this side plot where. Um, Jimmy and Vin- and Marcellus Wallace are fighting it out then trying to escape being you know taken over that's that's just the part I don't necessarily care about so it's not on my list my top five Bruce Willis performances um Die Hard 1 duh John McClane for everything I just said my favorite Christmas movie we'll talk about it when we get to Christmas on this Spoilers. podcast Spoilers, yes um Number two, and don't hate me, Oz, is Die Hard with a Vengeance. Because, again, this is how I like my Bruce Willis. I need him to be an action star. And I promise this is my last Die Hard, though. I promise. I will not say another Die Hard. Um, My number three is The Fifth Element, which is basically um, Die Hard, but in the future with uh, the lady from Resident Evil and a now very annoying Chris Tucker performance. Number four is the sixth sense, which when I mentioned that there's some prestige stuff on his radar, I, do we? Is there a point of saying spoiler alert for the sixth sense? Everybody knows no. what. Oh, everyone knows. Everyone knows. Okay, so that was a legitimate thing when you see it for the first time, and then going back and realizing that you didn't realize what happened, like the clues that M Knight was leaving you throughout the movie. Um, then you get to his reaction to realizing, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I died. Like, I'm not part of this world that I think is some of the better acting moments of his life. And, not for nothing, let me think, there's more there than just John McClane just an action star, which is why the other movie on my list is Unbreakable. I think those two movies are the two times where I thought like okay, Bruce Willis can can kind of create a different character other than Bruce Willis in a movie. Specifically the scene where his kid has finds his gun and they're in the kitchen and you you see him talk his kid down from doing something irrational. Like that that's that's a, Brilliant acting right there. So um I thought about putting Die Hard 2 on my list as well, but those are my top five Bruce Willis performances. Oz, what are yours?
2: So uh you know I actually have three that differ from you here. Okay. So great. we're 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 coming at this a little bit differently. Obviously, I agree diehard is number one. It is Perhaps the it's up there with Harrison Ford and Raiders is one of the most iconic action film performances ever. I, I love it. Uh, easy. Number one, my number two is six Sense for all the reasons you said. I, I'll say when I, I saw that movie opening day, as I see, I guess everything uh, at a theater, this shitty theater at the beach, this old rundown thing, and they were projecting it wrong. Mm-hmm. So you could see in some of the scenes, the boom mics dropping in because the film was being put in the wrong way and it still worked. It was still incredibly affecting. It's still the, the twist worked uh, every, even the performance of him sort of grappling with the crumbling marriage was very, very good stuff. And honestly, it, it it bums me out because that to me is the performance that shows the, sort of matured actor we could have gotten in later age. And instead we've only gotten teases of that instead of a full embrace. Uh, Three for me is, is totally uh, off the beaten path. It might be the most, Un Bruce Willis-y movie that Bruce Willis has ever been
1: in. And that's Moonrise Kingdom. I knew it. I knew it. As soon as I put it in my honorable mentions, I knew you're gonna have a Wes Anderson movie on here. I
2: don't even I'm not even a huge Wes Anderson fan, but I actually think Moonrise Kingdom is is one of Anderson's better movies. And part of it is the weird casting of Bruce Willis as this he's like the town sheriff or something like that who's involved with trying to find these two kids who run away from their summer camp. But it is all the sort of quirky
1: twee. As I swear to God, as I was writing my list, it's like you know what I don't. I guarantee Moonrise Kingdom is going to be on his list. Thank yep. you for not disappointing uh, me. No, it's look. No, I like the movie. I just knew this is going to be a, I, uh, This is me getting to know my co-host. I know your taste <laughs> is what I'm saying. I was like, yep, that's going to be on Oz's list.
2: I, I will say I did think about Die Hard with a Vengeance, but I didn't do it because okay. I'm trying to keep myself to one a franchise Fair. where I can. Uh, four for me is Looper.
1: Which oh, is wow. the okay?
2: Yeah, it's it's the rather good Ryan Johnson sci-fi movie where Bruce Willis is sent back in time to kill people, and then it turns out he's assigned to kill himself, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Ryan Johnson has gone on to greater fame with The Last Jedi uh, and Knives Out, but. Uh, yeah, Ryan Johnson, very very talented director, and I would recommend Looper for uh, the rare motivated, late, very late career Bruce Willis performance. And my fifth one, we're, we're throwing caution to the wind again. I, I I deserve whatever scorn you send my way when I say this. I, I will say that I think he he has a complete character arc. He actually moved me when I first saw this movie in theaters. Uh, I, it's funny. The action works. He's good in the action. Uh, what it's are a you good about to say? <laughs> <laughs> Number five for Bruce Willis is Armageddon. I knew it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, when, when he's chasing, I, I love that movie. When, I'm sorry. When he's,
1: <laughs> when he's chasing Ben Affleck in that shotgun, well, with nuclear devices everywhere, it's just let me know that Michael Bay, like. Doesn't give a fuck about logic. It's nope, very Nolan, like you said without Nolan, it's very much like, but but look how cool this is. But did you this see that? Cool yeah. Man. Yeah, I I Armageddon's my number six. So it's yes! we're not that far away. They furnished off an
0: apartment with a two-room robot sale. The coolerator was crammed with T V dinners and ginger ale. But when Pierre
1: found so, Bert- Next up is genre, and I struggled last week because I may just not know what, unless it's obvious, like The Dark Knight, um, what genre these movies are in. So, is Pulp Fiction a top five black comedy crime film? Now, Oz, how do you define black comedy crime?
2: Well, I I think... I think it's sort of two things mushed together here. So it's a black comedy, which is a comedy where the humor comes from dark situations or cynical views of the world. Um, And it also has to involve some element of criminal, criminal scheming or anything like that. I tried to avoid like straight heist movies, but uh, you know, the the, something that deals with criminals, dark, dark senses of humor, things of that nature. Uh, Yeah, it's a little bit of a a wishy-washy definition. So I'm curious what you came up with here.
1: Also, it's it's your turn to go first, I think. Yeah, because I went first for Bruce Willis. Um, Because again, I think your list will be the one that matters. And then my (laughs) list will be three. uh, I will say I do have three legitimate says on Wikipedia, black comedy crime, and then I'm going to (laughs) throw a bunch at you to see if you let me put them on the list, okay? But go ahead, your list. My number one, and I'm, I'm sticking to
2: one per director again here, or else it would these lists would be crazy. My number one is going to be Fargo, okay, which is awesome and wonderful and hilarious, and Francis McDormand is the best, and the Cohen brothers are amazing. Uh, Fargo's number one. My number two is The Sting, which is the okay. f- which is the famed Paul Newman, Robert Redford as grifters movies. It has Robert Shaw as the bad guy. He also famously played the bad guy in From Russia with Love. Uh, it's it's really Funny and compelling, and just sort of surprising material. At that point, Newman had been sort of on a, on the downswing of his career, and it it kind of pulled him back up. It's just it's also the the movie star charisma between the two of them doing this sort of dark comedy is uh, electric. So the sting's my number two. Three is a more recent more art house movie that I absolutely adore called In Bruges. With Colin Farrell as a knucklehead fuck-up hitman who's sent off to Bruges because he fucked up a job. And he basically pals around and gets drunk with Brendan Gleeson for an hour and a half until some dark shit happens in the last act. Uh, Very good stuff. Very funny stuff. My number four, another recent one is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I assume it is a nuclear hot take to prefer <laughs> Kiss Kiss Bang Bang to Pulp Fiction. But here we are. Uh, it is amazing. It is the Robert Downey Jr. Resurrection movie. It's hilarious. And fifth for me is Pulp Fiction. And I
1: have a ton of honorable mentions here. So let me start with this. Pulp Fiction is my number one. I think the the very best version of this, not unintentional comedy, but finding humor in situations that aren't funny The best versions of that happen in this movie. Um, I laughed the first time and the most recent time that Marvin's head got shut off. Christopher Walken talking about hiding a watch up his butt while telling Bruce Willis as a kid that his dad is dead. Uh, The cleaning of Marvin's head, the, the entire wolf sequence, the reviving Mia when they go to the drug dealer's house. Yeah, there's humor written into all of these scenes. Uh, I think the best versions of that happen in Pulp Fiction, and then my number two is Fargo for every reason that she said. So we're we're have two matches so far. The rest of my list. Do you think of The Wolf of Wall Street as a black comedy movie, or or is it more of a biopic? I don't think it's really.
2: A, I, I think it's more of a biopic okay. drama. I don't I don't think it. I don't think it. It's not like a. Yes, it's about a bad guy who does shitty things, but it it seems to me that it's more of like a a crime epic like. Goodfellas or Scarface or something mm-hmm. than it is a uh,
1: this sort of thing. Okay. I agree with you. I will just say first line of Wikipedia, Wolf of Wall Street is a 2013 American epic biographical black comedy crime film. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe I went back and wrote this before we started recording today, but we're, we're gonna check the IP address. Exactly. So I will say in my list of seven movies to ask you, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and In Bruges are on those lists. So I will make those two my three and my four, and then I'm just gonna throw a bunch of you, bunch of you, to see if you let me put them at my number five. Because I already <laughs> asked about Wolf of Wall Street. Um, will you let me put Uncut Gems at number five? You think? I- yeah fuck yeah sure why not? I don't, I don't, okay is it funny i don't know if it's funny There comedy enough that and a lot of it is funny in that movie is the point like Fine. the whole sequel like everything he's yelling at them while he's got them locked up and he's watching the kevin garnett game you know, you know why
2: why would you show it to me if i if i can't have it why would, you, exactly you, you, you get see? to have it again.
1: Bingo. Okay, the other ones I had written down were True Romance, obviously, Reservoir Dogs, obviously. Um, would you ever let me put Knives Out on here? Is that more of a Who Done It? You know, uh,
2: I put Knives Out on my list too. I I left it off because I think it's more of a Who Done It, but I, I had it as my as an honorable mention also.
1: Okay. So that's that's the black comedy crime genre, which Pulp Fiction does make our list. I think this is one of the few that we're like very far away from, though, which will be interesting yeah. with our scores later. So, and my my quickie
2: runners up. Uh, I I really like Spring Breakers. I toss that on there. Mm-hmm. Train Spotting. Burn after reading. But I'm sticking to one Cohen's and oh, Game Sh- Night.
1: Game Night. Wow, good call, Oz. Jeez,
2: Game ahead. Night is a strange ass movie. with Rachel McAdams and. Uh, Oh, God. What's his name? Uh, From. Oh, my God. Now I'm like, yes.
1: Uh, A guy from Ozark. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. Uh, There
1: we go. We did it. Go, Dodgers.
2: So, uh, yeah, it, uh, about people who play a game, which may or may not be a real murder adventure that's happening around them. Uh, it's really, really funny and tragically underseen. So I would strongly recommend finding Game Night.
1: Game Night has no business being as good as it is. Just flat no, out none, no business. being Like there's a scene where they're passing around an egg that they're stealing from a house. And they're all passing at each other across that. It's all in one take, and it's like, did Rogers? Did Roger Deakins do this movie? What is <laughs> happening? The Palm Door winner every year. So the Cannes Film Festival happens middle of the year, normally. Us, it's usually in the summer, yeah, early summer, okay. late spring, early so summer. So late spring, early summer, and for me, whenever I hear who wins the Palm Door, that's an early indication that like Oscar season has started. So Pulp Fiction wins it this year. And we're asking: Is Pulp Fiction a top five Palm d'Or winner of all time? So, as if you could go into detail of the significance of Pulp Fiction winning this, and just the you know the the reward and how much it matters in general.
2: I mean, I, I it is. I think the the single most important award that a film can win that isn't the Oscar for best picture. And I think to the extent that you care more about the vindication of the serious European film community, especially through sort of the French and Italian new wave in the fifties and sixties up through the far better work that was happening in, in Europe in the seventies and eighties, you, you get a, well, sorry, in the eighties, seventies, US cinema is very good, but you get this interesting perspective of what's great around the world. There are obviously quirks and eccentricities to the, the tastes that go into con and it tends to be much more highbrow but i think if, if if you run through a list of what wins every year it's not as highbrow or intimidating as you might think and even some of the movies that may have the the little two-inch barrier as as director bong said uh of subtitles tend to be things that are are fairly approachable and easy to engage with as a US audience. Now, I haven't seen this year's winner, Titan, which I, I gather is the most, it's the most batshit fucking movie ever, from what I hear. I'm seeing it at New York Film Fest next week. You but, are, okay. Um,
1: Can I just read the,
2: the plot synopsis of this movie? Oh, yeah, you should take a minute on this because it's fucking whack.
1: A mentally disturbed woman becomes pregnant after having sex with a car. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the, the movie called Titan or Titanium? Yep. Titan. titane, titane. The, okay.
2: tra- the trailer just went up today which you should watch because it's fucking
1: batch I, again the plot synopsis i just read so my top five palm door winners of all time um parasite's my number one it's a recent one obviously and P- parasite uh, has a case for like my top 10 ever so like i'll tell you right there parasite is bravo first of all um pulp fiction's my number two and part of this may just be like my infancy as a cinephile Oz. There's a lot of movies on this list. That I just have not seen. And a lot of them, You know, being foreign, like this is where I'm waiting for your expertise to show show up. And if there's somebody who has seen them, they're in the Criterion Collection. I know you've seen them. Uh, But Pulp Fiction is my number two. Uh, Taxi Driver is my number three. The Scorsese uh, 1979 film with uh, Robert De Niro. Um, Speaking of the late 70s, Apocalypse Now is my number four. And then you mentioned it earlier, Sex, Lies, and Videotape would be my number five. The Steven Soderbergh movies from the 80s. Uh, Oz, your list of top five Palm d'Or winners.
2: So I'll, I'll say I was going to include Taxi Driver in mine, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave it out to make things a little, more, a little more interesting and to recognize one more movie I like. Uh, keep a little variety here because Pulp Fiction is not making my, my top five. I figured. Okay. <laughs> my number one is going to be The Conversation which is a francis ford coppola movie from the 70s uh it's kind of his his lost movie uh i think he did it right after right i guess it was right after the god the first two godfather movies uh it's gene hackman as a fellow who works for a, a surveillance company listening in on phone calls and he hears a murder happen, and then it, it's Perhaps less of a, an action movie than Blowout, but it's a similar it's a similar elevator pitch. Uh, he, he's sort of grappling with the guilt of what he should do because he feels ethically bound not to out what's happening in the things that he records. But he has this sort of Catholic, very Catholic motivation to investigate it and follow up. It's really good. It's probably the best work of Gene Hackman's career. Uh, definitely worth tracking down. Uh, My number two, I I looked this up, I believe it was recently rated by the British Film Institute as the greatest British film ever made, is The Third Man, which is one of the early, it's one of the early film, film noirs. Uh, It's about an American who goes to Vienna uh, in like, it's like 1949 or something like that, immediately after the war to investigate the disappearance of a friend played by Orson Welles. Uh, It is beautifully made it's really compelling it, it actually it, it holds up quite wonderfully today so the third man is going to be my number two uh my number three we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna push it here a little and we're, we're gonna going say further the, um,
1: back than the third man not we're not going further back okay. it's more recent
2: <laughs> but we're, we're gonna do a, a jacques Demy movie the umbrellas of cherbourg oh wow this is this is something that that i assume nobody listening to this has ever heard of it's uh a romance movie that is also a musical uh, all of the dialogue is sung through. Uh, I know I, I've lost everyone's interest on this one at this point. Ah, people uh, like musicals. It's actually, You're good. It, it's really good. It's about a woman who deals with sort of the strife. Uh, she's she. It's called the Umbrellas of because she works in an umbrella store, but she deals with the strife of her husband going off to war in the Algerian War, and then him coming back and sort of w- what it's like for their relationship for him to have gone through that trauma. Uh, it's it's really good moving stuff, a little upsetting. Uh, um my fourth is gonna be Kagamusha, which is an Akira Kurosawa movie.
1: Oh
2: I it's, it's I should have known Kurosawa the, was coming. Okay. Yeah, it's what it's one of his lesser known, but uh it's very good. It's about sort of this this poor fellow who's forced to uh impersonate a feudal lord. Uh, and it just kind of builds and builds from there. All of Kurosawa's movies are Basically, all of them are amazing and worth your time and energy to track out. And when you watch them, you'll see, oh, shit, I've seen 20 movies that rip this off. And Kagamusha is no exception. And finally, I'm going to go with Shoplifters, which was a Japanese movie. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah, two or three years ago. Uh, It's about a found family in japan who in effect makes makes a living together by shoplifting and it, it seems like it should be a very boring thing but it's actually a, a really compelling moving human piece this wonderful character drama of these people who've chosen to make a life together in in a way it actually has a I, I think it, it would be a really interesting double feature with parasite which is also wonderful but the, the just two of them, thinking the same thing man Jeez. yeah they they Pair together really nicely, and I, I that that should be easy to find because it's like three years old. That that's definitely 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 worth your two hours if you want to expand your horizons a little bit. But yeah, there's there's a lot of cool stuff that's won the Palm d'Or. I don't think either of us mentioned Mash, for example, which is obviously like it's a masterful movie that everyone everyone should see, and obviously it turned into a wonderful TV show. There's the Piano, which is Jane Campion's legendary movie, and now she's back in the hunt this year with Power of the Dog which is good. So there's, there's blue is the warmest color. I like, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff. That's surprisingly accessible. Not everything is titane, but I know there's a feel to <laughs> something that plays a con that it's only for uh, douchebag assholes like me, but it's not oh. always the case. There's some approachable stuff. Everyone likes taxi driver there. There's, there's stuff that folks who are looking to push just a little beyond, you know, your Marvel bullshit, uh, can find to embrace in in the palm door
1: i am stunned that you didn't say tree of life because that was the other that was my first honorable mention you don't like that movie it's fine i'm not a terrence malick person oh my god john misrepresented you because i'm not a terrence malick person either but i think he's made one movie i like and it's tree of life
2: Uh, tree of life is my favorite terrence malick movie but terrence malick is is far 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 from my favorite director
1: did we just become best friends again god again. damn it Oz yeah. there you go okay we're having a good one this week we are we, all this agreement what take, is this you haven't taken out an entire decade or Christian Bale yet <laughs> so we're good yet. so far Marvin what do you make of all this man I don't even have an opinion well you
2: gotta have an opinion I mean do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped what oh, oh,
0: the fuck's happening oh house, man, shit. man. Oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to dude it was an accident. Oh man, I seen some crazy ass shit in my time, but just chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You he probably he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking
1: bump. Hey look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Now we go to nineteen ninety four. An interesting year for movies. Um this Pulp Fiction at Top 5 1994 movie. So when we talked about best picture snubs now this could have I'm I, honestly I forget whether or not this is on either of our lists um, but Forrest Gump won for best picture that year and it's one of the best best picture categories with the five being um, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Four Weddings in a Funeral and Quiz Show and a lot of people point to this year as one of the years like Goodfellas in 90 and like um 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 Roma winning or losing to Green Book or or Brokeback Mountain losing to Crash, this is one of the best picture travesties. So it's interesting how you're gonna feel because I've seen how you feel about Pulp Fiction so far, about where it ranks in the movies that came out. Like there are other movies that aren't, you know, best picture nominees that we didn't even mention just yet. There's some animation and some kids stuff that absolutely will be coming up in just a second. But how do you view 1994 as a year and specifically the controversy of Pulp, if you want to call it that, of Pulp Fiction not being recognized the way it should have at the Oscars? Here's the problem with that
2: controversy. Which one should have won? Mm-hmm. Leaving aside that I actually think Forest Cup is, is good. I do too. Not, not perfect. Weird. T- it's good. Apparently uh, it's weird to say that it's good, but yeah, I do too. It's not a popular opinion these days. Uh, it's good. Uh, leaving, leaving that out, I, I I I would not say that... that Pulp is the movie that I would pick as the snub. And if I were to... Pick one that is the biggest snub of the year for Best Picture. It would be the one that played on TNT every Saturday afternoon for my entire life, uh, which if you haven't guessed now, you'll hear momentarily when I run down my top five. The so, agreement uh, on
1: this episode, I swear to God. <laughs> no, this is good. This is, We've had some back and forth. We've had some arguments in our first three episodes. It's good that we can also show why we ever decided to do a podcast together. So- <laughs> I, I I'm right there with you on what you're, what you're talking about. The cable movie. No, no joke. When I went to Clearwater a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago, at the end of, July, end of June, um, there was a day because Florida were it poured and we were stuck inside watching USA. And this movie was playing because it's on every weekend. So it is, it's, it's magic.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've seen the Shawshank Redemption more times than I can count. Uh, it's my number one for 1994. I've, i you i I've, I've lost any objectivity here. I've seen it too many times. It it It's amazing. It works every time. I feel feelings every time. Uh, Shawshank's my number one. My number two, this may be a little bit of a stranger choice, but uh, it's Leon the Professional, whichever title you want to give it, which is the wonder... Natalie
1: Portman? Is that her? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay.
2: There you go. Yep. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, Gary Oldman uh and John Renault uh it's is the lead. It's a Luc Besson movie. I know I know Luc Besson is like ultra canceled these days, but leaving that aside, uh it, it's about a hitman named Leon who is, had is to.
1: a professional. He is a professional
2: uh who who meets this girl played by a young Natalie Portman and trains her to be an assassin. Now there are some elements that i imagine will not have age i haven't seen it in a couple of years i imagine that some of the elements of the sort of quasi oh god it is kind of like a quasi romance between uh the jean renault character and the natalie portman character who is 12 i repeat are probably not ideal but the movie is incredibly compelling it's incredibly well made it's really exciting uh luke bassan has already come up today for the fifth element uh who is a masterful action director even if he is also a rancid piece of shit (laughs) so uh my number three is a movie that i suspect i won't be the only one naming and that is my favorite of the modern disney animated classics and that is the lion king which I think I saw like four times in theaters when I was nine years old. It's the first movie that my little sister ever saw in a theater when she was not yet one. Uh, the Lion King is amazing. Uh, my number four is Ed Wood, which is perhaps my favorite Tim Burton movie about the worst movie director ever to live. Uh, it's also transgressive and weird in a lot of strange ways that I think age it wonderfully as opposed to all of these other movies we're talking about. And, Maybe this surprised you, but my number five is Pulp Fiction. And oh, makes, at this, at this point, play. I
1: was wondering if it even would make it. But okay, yep. All right, so it does make your list. It's, I mean, it's, it's also not my number one. So, like, spoiler for that. But my number one, you hinted at it, and this is, this is where I had to be like realistic about what my number one movie of 1994 would be. I was six years old in 1994, so. There's no scenario where the VHS of The Lion King that got played 100 <laughs> times a day um, was not going to be my number one. Um, I I don't even have to say more about The Lion I don't need to give a review of The Lion King. You guys know what I'm talking about. There was a weird-ass CGI version of it that came out two years ago, and it made a bajillion dollars. So, yeah, The Lion King is my number one. Shawshank's my number two. I will save my thoughts for when we do it. Pulp Fiction is my number three, and it's it goes back to where I, this more will relate when I'm talking about the 90s overall, but I had to put part of my list for 94 in what I love as a kid and what I love as an adult. My number four, speaking of me being a kid, is a sports movie called Little Giants, Uh the uh rick moranis plays a peewee football coach and his brother is a coach in the nfl and comes back to town and also has a local team that he decides to start coaching I guess he's just retired and they play each other and they uh it's the giants against the cowboys so the giants are the local team and ed o'neill was a coach on the cowboys and it's just, it's loads of fun. Um, I'm pretty sure I had a Pee Wee, like Little League nickname called Icebox as a kid. Um, I've wondered the whole, my entire life since seeing that movie, why receivers that have problems with drops don't just like pretend to catch toilet paper and there all your problems will be gone because that movie told me that this would happen. And I've been begging for one coach to have the stones to put the annexation of Puerto Rico into their playbook just to say it and then to see who gets the reference and then to see it turn into a touchdown. Uh, and then my my number five, because I'm on board with you, Oz. Forrest Gump is good whether people realize it or not. Forrest Gump is my number five and I get the critiques. I get the, the obvious Robert Zemeckis stuff, but Yes, Forrest Gump is good. Uh, end of tweet. Um, your honorable mentions for 1994.
2: Uh, I have a, there's a bunch of movies I like. There, I think two of the movies in the in Kieslowski's Three Colors trilogy came out here in 1994. It's a little confusing because they're Polish movies uh, that are sort of like a um, almost like an allegorical history of, of French uh, liberty. But um, Three Colors trilogy is is good. We'll go fun and say Speed is my, probably my six. favorite Actually, I movie. was so mad. Oh,
1: I, I was this close to putting it
2: on, but I had to before it's come fun. Okay. Uh, there's a fucking great documentary that came out that year called Hoop Dreams, which is uh, one of the greatest documentaries ever made as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I, I, had a, I like Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's really good. And I... I probably shouldn't admit this but I think Interview with the Vampire is pretty good
1: also. Well so I mentioned last week Clear Present Danger the Oh yeah yeah the that's Jack a, Ryan that's movie 94 94 too. also yeah, that's so that's on my list. Um speaking of sports movies Little Big League I don't like I don't love it as a whole. I think like 12 year old becomes manager of the Twins gets grounded once it's kind of corny. There's a scene where He's up for like, I'll just be the manager. And then the bench coach decides to quiz him on what he'd do in a situation. And the kid asks like 27 qualifying questions about context. And I just remember being like, that would be me. That would be me if I was ever like asked by the Mets to be the manager. And I was like, yep, I would know. And we would use no analytics, Oz, because gut feel is what <laughs> matters. And that's why the Mets continue to be one of the worst run of franchises. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention Dumb and Dumber, which is a movie that I, I watched a couple of years ago and didn't laugh at all. And it broke my heart because I was like, oh, damn, I'm a grown up. I can't laugh at this anymore. And... I remember like there, there's a friendship with two other dudes that from like high school that we all saw dumb and dumber sleeping over at a friend's house. And it became like the thing we made jokes about for the next 20 years. And I, I really hurt my, I hurt my soul when I realized I didn't think dumb and dumber (laughs) was funny anymore, especially since the sequel is one of the worst sequels of all time. Okay. The big one is Pulp Fiction, a top five 1990s film. Go ahead, Oz. Take out the whole 90s. You know you want to. The 90s are bad, right? Uh, No, the 90s are good. I I like the 90s. (laughs) 90s The (laughs) 90s are one of the good
2: decades in American filmmaking. Uh, Look, we touched on the Sundance revolution, but indie filmmaking came came to life in the 90s. People got away from the studio system and found ways to get financing to tell more personal, more intimate stories. And all of The movies like Pulp Fiction that we like, you know, Soderbergh is making, you know, I know he retired like 10 years ago, but has made like 17 movies since he retired. (laughs) Uh, You know, guys like Steven Soderbergh, just all all of these people come of age in this era. And even the studio system starts to integrate in more interesting visual people, music video directors. I, I know Michael Bay deserves to get slagged in a bunch of ways, but... Michael Bay is visually interesting. You get guys like Fincher. There's just a lot of cool stuff that starts to percolate up throughout the 90s. Mainstream stuff is is fine. I think it's probably a hair better than the 80s overall. I mean, maybe it doesn't have the nostalgia factor, but there's a lot of good, enjoyable, like 90s action shit is something that I grew up on. And stuff like Face Off and The Rock is is deeply formative (laughs) for... Uh, and not Dwayne the Rock. I, yeah, I mean no. Michael Bay. I mean Michael <laughs> Bay. The Rock is deeply formative to the shit I love about movies. So I I like the 90s. I think it's way better than the 80s because it it is, if not as good, almost as good when it comes to the blockbuster stuff, and it is radically better when it comes to the serious filmmaking endeavors uh, uh that said pulp fiction will not make my top five oh, of no! the 90s okay and it barely made the top five for 94 so if you throw in i don't know let's pick one good movie from the 90s good go And there we go, go. We've, we've we've ousted it so uh without giving away the full list because it will perhaps come up in uh an episode very soon uh we we can pass to you
1: what the fuck with this episode eyes okay so it also doesn't make my top 5 of the 90s however here's the deal and i mentioned it with 94 there's two versions of my 1990s list there's the i was like born in 88 and watched movies throughout the 90s and like turned 13 in 2001 and then you know as a teenager decided what movies I like there's like a so basically like there's a list of the 90s from when I was a kid and what I enjoyed which is why Lion King and Toy Story and Space Jam and other movies like that will be up there for me then there's the movies that as an adult and it's like oh this came out in the 90s and I've already mentioned Jurassic Park or you've mentioned one Pulp Fiction is my number seven like I literally went on Letterboxd look at all of my my five star movies and from the 90s and ranked them and I I, Pulp Fiction just missed like Shawshank is above it obviously and I won't say what's on my top five because like you mentioned we have another movie coming up in a couple uh, in very soon that (laughs) might show up in a top five of the 90s list Jimmy lead the way boys get to work please would be nice come again I said a please would be nice Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instant you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of
0: luck, gentlemen. No, 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 Mr. Wolf, it ain't like that. Your help is definitely appreciated. Mr. Wolf, listen,
1: I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me, that's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you wanna get out of this. So pretty please. With sugar on top. Clean the fucking car. So let's wrap up. We're going to recap the final reviews of Pulp Fiction. I will go first. For Quentin Tarantino directed films, it's my number three. For Quentin Tarantino written screenplays, it's my number two. For John Travolta performances, it's my number three. Uma Thurman performances, it's my number two. Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson performances, it's my number one. Bruce Willis performances, it is not in my top five. For black comedy crime movies, it's my number one. For Palme d'Or winners, it's my number two. For the year of 1994, it is my number three. And in the 1990s, it does not make my list. This gives me a total score of 31 points out of 50, which then gives you... Pulp Fiction in the 62nd percentile, which I am very comfortable with. Closer to the top, if you told me there's only 38 better movies in the top 100 of all-time great movies, that sounds about right, according to my pantheon. Boy, do I love the proof of concept actually working out. Oz, you go.
2: I have a, let's see, third place for Tarantino directing, fourth place for Tarantino script, third place for Travolta, second place for ugh, Uma Thurman, <laughs> uh, a dominant first Damn. place for the excellent Samuel L. Jackson, uh, not on the Bruce Willis list, uh, fifth place on the uh, black comedy crime genre, not on the Palm d'or, fifth place for 1994, not on the 1990s. Uh, that gets me to a score of 19, uh, which feels about right. Just a little below average as a, uh, great films go for me and yeah, that's i I feel pretty comfortable with that
1: ranking okay so just to juxtapose it a bit the dark knight got 11 and pulp fiction only got eight points higher which like you're still positive though more than negative on pulp fiction which is why i'll ask what would be your grade out of 10 on the movie Uh, probably a nine so not perfect but almost
2: perfect yeah, eight, 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 a strong eight, a soft nine, a nine. Let's call it a nine. it a nine. It's a really it's a really good movie. I think it is, for me at least, and I know you, you touched on this point, it's sort of moved into a place of being more important than good in some ways, which is just a complex thing to grapple with in the legacy of the film. But it's it's certainly essential viewing for anyone trying to educate themselves on what film in the 90s is like. And I think there's plenty of genuine
1: merit to to watch here. So, we had a very agreeable episode. We met, which is weird because I thought our scores would be much closer, but toward the end, this is where the the gap in both of us matters. Um, I need to to offer an olive branch to you. So, last week my dis t- the test for Star Wars came up, and I mentioned in John Williams scores that I I had a, I, it's not going to change my score at all, but I'd like to offer a correction because like f- there are franchises that matter and there are ones that have really affected my life regardless of, you know, fans or or how passionate they can be. So I would like to sub out Superman two as my number four, if that's okay. Um, and put the beloved John Williams score from Harry Potter and the sorcerer stone as my number four. Instead. <laughs> And that is more of an homage to um, the talking to I got from my girlfriend who loves that franchise and was like, how could you not even mention <laughs> Harry Potter and the Sorcerer Stone? I was like, you know what? Because here's the thing. I had it on my honorable mentions, but I got so lost in defending my Star Wars stinks that I had to like go off and defend that before I could even mention that. Oh, yeah. He really nailed the Harry Potter score, too. So there you go. My new number four for. John Williams scores is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That
2: that was your Conor McGregor. I'd like to take the chance to apologize, apologize. to absolutely fucking nobody.
1: Exactly. That Roman is one hundred percent. Just happy. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, this is a fun episode, and I think we. One thing i will just I'll wrap up with Tarantino. Like you mentioned, going on a Tarantino binge. He's one of the because it's only ten movies. Yes, ten movies. There's like there's like a week of Tarantino you can do at any point a year, and I think you'll. Come away, you know, happy that you did it, right? Just skip Grindhouse. Just skip, literally just skip Death Proof and I think you'll be okay. So there, we're back to nine. Maybe that's what he's doing subliminally. Is not (laughs) saying that Kill Bill is two movies. He's saying like Death Proof never happened. I've only done nine movies, guys. There you go. Um, Oz, what would you like to plug before we get out of here? Uh, Inventionofdreams.com
2: launching October 1st. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Oz on Movies. Uh,
1: yeah, looking forward to next week's episode. I can already tell you're excited about next week's episode. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Andrew J. Claudio. Follow the pod at Final Review Pod. Follow us on Instagram and Letterboxd by searching for Final Review Podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. If you dug this episode, head over to iTunes to drop a five star rating and a review. And we'll be back with yet another Final Review.